0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Emily Burt, Deputy Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month, we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. Now, I'm not a complete stranger to podcasting, as I previously hosted People Management magazine's That HR podcast, so it's great to be back behind the mic and working with the inimitable Anushka Tate again. Later, I'll be talking to Alexia de and Shai Aziz, co-founders of NGO Safe Space, on disrupting patriarchy, racism and colonialism in international charities. We'll also be hearing about a particularly innovative charity campaign that revolved around two fake products. But first, I want to talk about a generation that seemingly have far more time than money when it comes to the voluntary sector. There's a worry that we're facing a crisis in fundraising. Research from the Charities Aid Foundation suggests overall donations are in decline, and Third Sector's own Donating Trends report show this drop is most pronounced among younger people aged between 16 and 25. But does this mean that Gen Z don't care about charities? Or do they just want to be more hands-on in their approach? I'm going to speak to Amanda Chetwin-Carrison from the British Youth Council, the National Youth Agency's Lydia Allen and Alex Cheney, a volunteer at Brook Charity and Bloody Good Period, to find out. Let's start off, if all of you could just tell me what made each of you
1: want to get involved with charitable work. Um, Lydia, we'll, we'll start with you. So my background is sort of more environmental and geography. So I studied geography at university, but I always knew I wanted to go into protecting the environment in some way, but I didn't really know how. And I first of all started at National Trust on an internship there and I absolutely loved it. But I knew that I wanted to work with younger people more. And this job came up with the National Youth Agency. And it was all about engaging young people and environmental issues, mm-hmm. giving them a grant of £10,000 each, which is quite a lot of money. But this would tackle environmental issues using digital technology. And that was something I was quite interested in because it was quite modern. It looked at new tech such as VR or AI and all these different things that young people were really catching on to, as some people call them digital natives, um, to use tech in, for good. So that's sort of like how I got into it, I guess. Alex, I would say you're you're a prolific
0: volunteer. It seems that every, everywhere I look, Alex is there volunteering, shaking a bucket, putting together resource packs. You are so such a motivated, like, I don't want to call you like a young person, but you're like a really motivated young person. How did you start kind of getting into this?
2: It's really odd, actually. So I was at uni and I went through a really bad period of mental health problems and I dropped out of uni and became housebound for sort of three years Mm. and during that period being housebound there wasn't much to do at home. I looked on the internet sort of what volunteering opportunities were available and social media stuff came up and obviously you can do that anywhere and applied for various places Brooke being one of them and started doing social media stuff for them and a couple of other charities and it really grew from there, from there. Yeah. yeah
0: and Amanda you're the chair of the British Youth Council how how did you end up in that role
3: well it's a slightly again it's a slightly odd story especially when I was younger I actually wasn't 100% oh I have to be involved in charities or fundraising is something I'm like mega keen on I just always kind of wanted to be busy I got bored like very easily when I was like at school and at uni and one of the easiest but also actually like cheapest things to do was just to actually get involved in fundraising um, was just to kind of really focus on stuff that I like really cared about so whether that was campaigning on like environmental issues or any of that kind of stuff and that just I think just kind of ended me up really in the charity sector. But I didn't really think about being a trustee or particularly like a young trustee until I kind of accidentally ended up chair of board at the Students' Union because I got elected as like the Student Union president but didn't realise the trustee bit came like (laughs) alongside (laughs) it. So I then just had to do that as well and really enjoyed it and found out about the British Youth Council and just found out that they were really cool and did loads of really inspiring work and just like worked my way like through the charity. It's kind of like a series of mistakes i suppose
0: third sector's latest research suggested that 16 to 24 year olds are much more about giving their time to charitable causes through volunteering and and other routes than they are about kind of giving money through donations would you say this is accurate and do you want to throw some ideas around for why this might be occurring
3: there's a couple maybe potentially like a couple of really obvious points particularly for that age group Mm -hmm. is one, if you've already got quite a large student debt and it's quite expensive being a young person and the cost of living is going up. But also, for the last like 10 years, there has been a narrative of oh, you don't have to just give money, you can give your time instead, or it's a nice way to meet new people, it's good for your CV. It's not actually, to me, it's not surprising that there's that shift because actually it kind of solves one problem in, like, skills and employability and, like, meeting new people, but it also doesn't add to another problem of being, like, a young person with increasing debt. The British Youth Council has more young people getting involved with us like every year in a whole host of different ways. But that doesn't mean they're all becoming like regular donors. It means they're working in their local community or getting more young people to fill out like make your mark and that kind of stuff. So it kinda fitted with what I assumed young people would be doing, to be honest with you. Alex, was that a surprise to you?
2: No, not really. I think the way things are going, especially with cost of living, I think people aren't able to donate. So People wanting to get involved are thinking about using their time, especially with Bloody Good Period and stuff like that. I think causes that are in the public eye and are like making really big sort of awareness campaigns are getting young people involved, active and trying to use their time probably be. Mm.
1: Yeah, I would echo both um, Amanda and Alex's points about the cost of living stuff. Um, but I'd also say because young people are more online now, I think it's something like ninety-eight percent of young people have internet access. So they could help charities in different ways, including with like social media campaigns. I'm sure people here on the table have sort of shared hashtags or possibly like signed petition for charities. It's not just about the money; it's about what they can. Give in terms of their digital platform as well. I'd also echo about the skills and the training. It's so important now for young people to gain skills and training for future opportunities and employment. Mm. And as we know, like employment levels aren't so great for young people and it's a struggle for them to get into jobs. So anything that charities can help with in terms of volunteering and offering that training and skills to young people is so crucial and something that young people I think really value as well. And they'll probably value that charity more in the long term if they're able to give them skills and training as well.
0: I think you've made a really important point there about how valuable time can be for young people and and how valuable it can be for giving that. On the flip side, and to be like slightly mercenary about it, charities do need money if they're going to survive. Mm -hmm. And we're at a time where lots of them are facing really extreme financial pressures in the face of things like government cuts, you know, and and other drains on their resources. So that question of where their financial support is going to come from is is weighing on them. And we know that we're seeing a big drop in young people giving. But this is part of like a much broader decline, according to research in giving as well. So that's going to throw up lots of questions about how they fundraise in kind of effective and meaningful ways, why people choose to donate, why people choose not to donate. Alex, what would you say to kind of, I guess, convince people that time is just as important as money? And could you tell us a bit about the ways that you give time as a volunteer?
2: Yeah, so with Bloody Good Period, I help out at their storage unit, sort in donations that come in and sort in orders that are going out to refugee centres. With Brook, it is basically everything that yeah. is sort of available, sort of everything from mystery shopping for condoms to sort of helping out on relationships and sex education policy.
0: Amanda what do you think about this kind of balance between time and money?
3: It'd be quite easy to see it as like an either or but actually one they could go kind of like hand in hand so Mm. actually a lot of young people particularly like my friends and like myself as well we potentially give money or just give like spare change to causes that you care about that you might actually just like see if you're kind of passing them on the street or if you're passing like a campaign day that's going on but that's doesn't mean that it necessarily is going to be a charity that you might also think, oh, okay, I'm going to volunteer like every Saturday morning or like after school on like a Wednesday or something. So actually I think a lot of people don't see it as a either or. They kind of see it as a way to really spread the number of causes they're involved in. And I was chatting to somebody else about like charities in their comms and I think we, li- we live in such a hectic time and there are so many charities and there is like a huge crossover in terms of the number of charities who are campaigning On really similar topics and sometimes like the exact same topic, which isn't a bad thing because every charity has their own audience and their own reach. But it does mean that you're going to have to really improve your comms, particularly to young people who are just so savvy and like communicate in a completely different way to even just like the over 45s or any of those age groups, really. And I think charities potentially have a bit of work to do on their comms like. right so let's so let's talk about that comms is something that has just come up
0: multiple times in in the space of about 10 minutes so if you're not connecting with with Generation Z but these younger generations in the same way that you would necessarily connect with over 45 year olds what practical advice would you guys offer to charities who are looking to make those meaningful
1: connections that will hopefully then turn into either donations or volunteering something that i was thinking about when alex and amanda were talking as well as charities being open and transparent with their data because mm. young people are more likely to sort of follow up their story and to look into what where the impact actually goes so something that's really interesting in that is making sure that there's different content perhaps like video content on their impact, so that stuff that young people can watch is more young people likely to watch stuff on YouTube than other generations than say TV, I know Netflix is really popular but then if you add on stuff to podcasts say because actually it's something like 21% of 16 to 24 year Listen to podcasts. There you go. So Mm. weekly podcast. Yeah, get your get your content onto there as well. So I think there's different ways in which charities can definitely target that age group a bit more. But I think being open and transparent about stuff. I know, obviously. A few months ago, or perhaps a year ago now, the Oxfam scandal sort of came out and I think that was a big movement and in concern for people to really look at what charities are doing and how they do their work and the impact that they make and I think... With young people being more connected to the global world and aware of social environmental issues I think that's that's quite important now mm. Alex what about you you do a lot of comms work
2: yeah um I think social media plays such a crucial role Bloody good period do their comms and especially Instagram is just so good mm. and I, I speak to a lot of people at the unit and that's how they found out about the charity and got involved in it. A lot of charities could learn from examples like bloody good period
0: i think something that i have heard and which i think actually makes sense and this kind of kills two birds with one stone is that someone said to me you know if you want to have a really good comms strategy that's going to engage young people get young people to do it yeah, and they're like, definitely. it's patently obvious, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I think, actually, Amanda, this might have been something that you said for a feature. That's the wise voice <laughs> I was hearing. <laughs> you. <laughs> get, young, yeah, get young people to do
3: it. So, so why, actually, why don't you speak to that? Never mind Oh, uh, we'll, well, I would always say there's a difference between a youth-focused charity and a youth-led charity. And, you know, one of the reasons that we actually have, like, organisations coming to the British Youth Council and saying, oh, can you just basically run a Twitter poll for us or find out what like a group of young people think for us is because our comms are very much led and directed by what like our young members and like people involved in us say and what they want and what they do and I just think it's just so obvious if a charity is like we're looking to engage young people but it's a decision that's been made by a really stereotypical charity board of trustees so (laughs) traditionally quite like old and like white and like quite like male and I think it's a bit of a challenge potentially for some of those charities and some of those trustee boards to have to really think, actually, if we want to engage young people, why are we looking to just engage them? Why are we not allowing them to actually like lead our work as well? And there's definitely a conversation starting to happen with that and you can see more charities not just talking about their comms they're talking about their structures which is excellent but i mean you know the average age of the trustee is still like 61 i think or right something. I, that might be wrong but it's, it's quite old and it and shouldn't think... just
0: be like a youth-led charity being led by you know yeah like all charities
3: people if they're trying to yeah. think long term like you have to engage people who are under the age of 25 realistically otherwise your charity is going to really struggle in the next like few years and I just think you can't be youth-focused. You have to be youth-led as much as anything.
0: So that's the idea that obviously, you know, people, I think, often think of tech as this silver bullet
1: for Mm. getting the
0: young people. And they're like, you know, oh, we'll Snapchat them all, or, you know, whatever. I think what you've just said there is really important, which is ultimately that you've got to do this with a strategy. And you have to have, like, a clear kind of structure and an aim in place when you're doing these things yeah. outside of the kind of tech sphere is there anything else that you guys would suggest for sort of reaching younger people
3: i think a lot of charities are still if they were really like really honest with themselves i think a lot of them are still actually quite based in london even if they're not physically based in london and i get it because that's where a lot of decision makers are it's where politicians are it's where a lot of young people are but if you call yourself a uk-wide charity how do you reach out to young people in northern ireland or mm. south cornwall like where i'm from or norfolk or orkney and that kind of stuff and actually when you think about it it can be a bit overwhelming but there's no reason it shouldn't be something that you work into like a 10-year plan you don't have to fix it by like the next six months but it's not just about like the tech and the comms it's about like your physical outreach and your physical presence as well and it's so easy to be like we've met loads of mps or we've met loads of decision makers or funders and they are traditionally based in london so i think people have to challenge themselves slightly on that one as well potentially
1: yeah just to sort of go off on that actually so national youth agency is a national youth work charity we're based in leicester which is still quite rare i guess like amanda was saying for a charity um we did have a london office but we actually don't anymore we are trying to be less london centric though like you said government's based here so in terms of MPs supporting us we have to be have some presence here but we have like i'm based near manchester we have colleagues in blackpool in the northeast so we're slowly but surely like spreading out more more. and we, we definitely try and get that face-to-face contact as well and that's so important for say disadvantaged young people who I know it's a very low percent who don't have in- internet access I think it's like two percent but still there is a two percent that don't have internet access and might not hear from us on social media so it's so important to make sure they're still engaged as well.
0: Something yeah. that I am seeing a lot of and I think we've seen a lot of over the last year especially is the rise of direct action, um, which is being driven by by younger people? So you know, we've seen Greta Thunberg walking out of school, Extinction Rebellion blocking off all the roads in London. Do you think that we could see this generation starting to sort of favour that that kind of direct action? Lydia, I'll let you start as you're very into the eco... Um, yeah,
1: I absolutely love it. or <laughs> <laughs> um, the youth climate strikes, I'm so supportive of it. And it's amazing that young people have come out in force from across the UK, can I add? Like, it's, this is not just London. This yeah. is something like 59 cities or something across the mm. UK have their own separate march. And it's amazing to see. However... There are going to be young people, say, who couldn't afford the travel to get there or couldn't get out of school because their school had said, you're going to get a detention or, you know, you're going to get extra work if you do. And so that in that sort of state of fear, they've said, oh, actually, no, I won't because I don't want to get into trouble. So it's a really interesting point, actually, because with that, with the school stuff, it's almost like, are you stopping them from expressing their Mm. viewpoint from not letting them march and Mm. to sort of having that sort of punishment? involved. And is there something that charities could potentially
0: do there to kind of be that, that middleman or that bridging thing? Yeah like I, th- I think so,
1: I think it could be but I think charities are a bit wary especially if they've got particular contracts or with particular funds, potentially government funds, do they want to cross that line do they want to show that they're supporting people protesting against government or could they address it in a different way and in a different light to show that they're actually just supporting young people's voice but want to help and support government at the same time in hearing their voice. So I think there's definitely different ways you can go about it, but there is a good path to go on, if that makes sense. Amanda, what do you think? Yeah,
3: I think... I mean obviously I would say this but I do think that's something that like British Youth Council does quite well yeah. in the sense that we do like run like the traditional structures so the youth parliament or youth select committee mm. and all this kind of stuff NHS youth forum but at the same time the bit that really struck me actually in the last couple of months was we've just launched this year's youth select committee which is on knife crime and it's had like more submissions than any of the others I think but at the very same time you've got young people literally submitting evidence to like a government committee they were also holding like rallies outside parliament with so the hashtag like real knives real lives and again I don't think it's something that has to be either or and I think a lot of charities do see direct action and influencing decision makers as an either or but actually if you work with young people yeah. and like let young people lead those campaigns quite often than not they'll come up with a way and be like obviously I'll write a submission to the youth select committee but I'm also going to go and shout with a megaphone outside yeah. parliament sure. and, like, there's no reason you shouldn't do both I think it's a sign of quite a healthy democracy in society that people feel free to do both but I can see why some charities are slightly reluctant Mm. but I also think again I think charities need to start challenging themselves a bit like it's not all about an impact report it's about actually making sure the people who are supporting and like championing your charity and its brand and its name are getting to do so in a way that actually helps them achieve what they want to achieve through it.
0: Alex, what do you reckon when we see you picketing outside the education secretary's office (laughs) anytime in the near future?
2: I mean, I haven't done it. He's already doing it. There you go. We're right there. (laughs) Yeah, I think both. Uh, crucial i think with bloody good period you've got the route of volunteering yeah but i think you also got direct action happening like with the uh, peer poverty campaign and that last year there was quite a big demo outside parliament on yeah. it and it led to just some change around tax and how that was going to be used so, so you can so see
0: a fusion of action yeah. in the future i think mm, wonderful yeah. well amanda lydia alex thank you so much for your time today it's been brilliant Alexia Peppa de Cares and Shyster Aziz are campaigners and intersectional feminists who set up NGO Safe Space to disrupt the patriarchy and talk about systemic cultures of abuse in the voluntary sector. I managed to steal a little bit of time with them at our fundraising conference, and I started by asking Alexia why she thinks it's taken so long to start this dialogue about abuses of power in the charitable sector.
4: For me it's been a twin impact of going through the 90s and noughties pretending that we'd solved patriarchy, that women had power because we had certain forms of power that may not have been afforded to us previously and we also had social media which was giving us platforms and visibility. So there was a kind of pretense that patriarchy was done and dusted and we didn't really have to talk about it, could we move on to more exciting things, thanks very much. The other is that the charity sector likes to portray itself as an ultimate bastion of kind of British do-gooding. I would take that apart in a much longer conversation about colonialism links and heritage but in terms of its reputation the people who go into the sector and who run out the very echelons of its management and oversight want to continue to display it as a sector that is just inherently good and nothing can be critiqued about it. So that's why there's been such silence for so long.
5: Also power. So power is very good at protecting power. Power reinforces power. And patriarchy is at the heart of power, as is racism, as is colonialism. And so for decades and decades, these issues have kind of just been covered up inside organisations. And so when Me Too started second time around, because Tarana Burke was the woman, the African-American woman who created Me Too to talk about you know women of colour's oppression in relation to patriarchy so that basically gave an opportunity for women to start speaking up in a very different way to have a conversation using language that perhaps they didn't have before and to be able to reach out to each other as well and I think the rage just started building and the, the acknowledgement that wow this has happened to so many of us and it continues to go on.
0: And so you met together in Parliament, as I understand it, and you had a conversation which led to you setting up NGO Safe Space. For people who aren't familiar with it, can you just explain what this movement is, how it works, and and what you're hoping to achieve with it?
4: We're the women who won't shut up. The ones who aren't being paid off by nice big deals, the ones who aren't interested in this the short-term solutions that scratch the surface only. And because we're not beholden to anyone else's power, we've actually realised between us that we have an incredible amount of leeway to have conversations and analyses that so few people... We were so surprised that the international sector, which sees itself as very feminist at the moment, had so little to say on such a hardened, toxic mix of masculinity and patriarchy and power and racism all mixed up together... So we're the kind of disruptors who don't feel like anyone else can really call the shots, which is actually not how the system really works.
5: Yeah, it causes anxiety for people to know that we are outsiders, but we're insiders because we worked in the sector for a very long time. We know the so-called tricks of the trade. We know exactly what these toxic cultures are really about and the impact they have on women and indeed men. And so now it's difficult to shut us up because we're not actually on anyone's payroll. We are, inverted commas, uncontrollable, and throughout history they have been many uncontrollable women who have created a lot of anxiety for people who as Alexia says just want want us to go away. This is an
0: endemic problem we know that this is an endemic problem not just in the charitable sector in private sector organisations as well and Alexia you have famously advocated that we need to see systemic change in this sector rather than fancy systems being put in place. How do you begin driving change in the face of this problem that is so huge? It starts
4: with conversations. Shostra and I are predominantly activists as well as advocates and we're also politically active, which means coming into contact with people. One of the things that patriarchy and whiteness does is it separates us from other human beings. Capitalism has the same impact on people. So where we are right now, and we're seeing this in terms of the climate crisis, the crisis of loneliness, we're seeing that the tools of control and repression that have been used for centuries and, and thousands of years to ensure that a small number of people have all the access to resources and power over a large number of people is that it causes separation. And that separation evidenced itself in many different ways, but the way that we saw it was that women were not having those conversations. And the simple act of us starting a platform to say... It's okay to have those conversations. You don't have to have them with us, but we're always at the end of an email address and we do get emails from people who have set up their own groups or who want to contact us because they admire the way we're tackling the conversations. that As much as we think that Western women are empowered, they're not talking about the harms that we would have thought would have been resolved, as you rightly say, decades ago.
5: And I think what NGO Safe Space shows is solidarity at work. So solidarity is at a premium. Uh, this country's in turmoil, many countries around the world are in turmoil. As Alexia says, this whole divide and rule, these tactics are being used everywhere in the world. The more people feel anxious about their livelihoods, about where their jobs are going, about economic insecurity, the more they start kind of closing down and they start believing that actually they, they can only get somewhere by pushing someone down. Also, the fact that, you know, I'm a visible Muslim woman, a woman of colour, and Alexei is a, a white woman. We, we don't see this type of solidarity at work, generally, out there, we don't. And we certainly don't see in this sector, and so I think this is something as well that people have been quite intrigued by. We go to lots of different events, and indeed, when people see a visible woman of colour and a Muslim woman, present talking about these issues it's really I mean we had a disclosure from a woman in the audience another Muslim woman who described a horrific you know she had an allegation of a horrific sexual attack on her and she said she felt she could talk about this for the first time to complete strangers in a room because someone like me was sitting there and we're very aware of the fact that this is what intersectionality is about this is the power of intersectionality and this is why our platform is so different and this is also why we know that through the conversations we had with these large international organisations, they know they can't ignore us, but they're equally not willing to really take on board what we're saying, because we are working in a way that is so advanced compared to the way that they think.
0: And I think there is a particular challenge for charities in particular because there's this, definitely there's this assumption which I think everyone has that, you know, people go into charitable work for very altruistic reasons and I think there's this kind of assumption and and to a degree, rightfully so, that charities are the good guys. They're the people who are doing good work and I think if you have this kind of, you're coming from the starting place of like, oh, but we're the really good guys, that can make it that much harder to confront the uncomfortable truths of what is going on within your own organisation. But who
5: are these charities the good guys for? Are they the good guys for other people who look like them? So the predominantly it's a white middle class arena, the charity sector, everywhere you look yeah. it's a fact. But when you go into the so-called field, I mean, just these terms that are used, I mean, the term the field makes it sound like it's so disconnected and removed from everywhere else. It's ridiculous. But when you talk to people who don't have the same level of power because of their racialized identities and because of their other identities, you start understanding that they don't... Don't think the charity sector is a bastion of do gooding, they, they think the exact opposite. When they find out that they're being paid significantly less compared to someone who's classified as an expat because they're white, all of these so called notions of being a do gooding setup start unravelling. But they're not the people with the power, so they can't make the change. So, I do agree with you that generally there is this perception that um, these organizations are there to do good. No organization is here just to do good, no individual is here just to do good. We have to keep all of ourselves in check. I have to keep myself in check. I have to be aware of what my intentions are when I'm doing this work. And the the same should apply to the sector.
0: If you could offer any practical advice to people who recognise what you've just said and want to be proactive in driving
4: that change, what would you tell them to do now? The things we say to people who want to know how to be part of the change, part of the movement, is to be very clear about what workplaces you're going into. Do not offer your labour to any workplace where you've heard things aren't quite right, where you see a gap between what is being said and what is being done, because that gap will play out in every single different framing of that that organisation's work. So withholding your labour is a very positive powerful acts in a sector that actually is quite internal and I think it should be much more mixed and, and should, the people should be cycling in and out of it with different experiences. The other thing is to test the water and to if you see an abuse of power which as we've described today comes out in lots of different ways. Bullying is one way that abuses of power happen and is just as prevalent actually when you open up in a workplace about sexual harassment. People also want to talk about bullying because that's another way in which someone else's power is being wielded over you and your job satisfaction and your job security is being held over your head so that someone else can feel the benefit of having you know, a little bit of a power play with somebody. If you push the water and someone is willing to listen, you can see opportunities. And people will also come to you because you start to become a beacon of someone who does want to disrupt and be better. Mm. If you feel a pushback, then again, that's a signal to you of whether that workplace is really ready to do the work. And I think in 2019, what I'm seeing charities suffer is actually lack of people applying for jobs because they may not want to put themselves at risk when they could get together in a startup hub with some friends and maybe make a social enterprise and be doing something in a much more positive framing.
5: Yeah, and show solidarity with people at all times. When they say, when they go out and talk about their experiences, don't dismiss them, listen to them. And to these entities, the NGO sector, which is lots of different actors, what i say to them is you need to start doing the work there's no point continuing to talk about this there's no point pretending you're doing the work people can see through what's going on more than any other time it's really easy to be found out and the work is not being done it's simply not being done we are a year on from oxfam and save the children and everything else and there is very little change there's just lots of chat Safeguarding is the buzzword, uh, this is not accountability, the buzzword, uh, the buzzword of accountability is, not need, uh, is what's needed, is, safeguarding is not the be end and end all of everything and this is the change that we need to see urgently and like I said the sector I don't think is willing to make the change but it will be forced to make the change by the market so the, the money is drying up, it's a fact. Okay? People have had enough. They're like, why have we been giving money for 50 years to this charity? Why are those people over there still poor? Obviously, the narratives that they paint themselves, the charities, doesn't help them. The things are far more complex than that. But, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of why there is oppression, why there is poverty, why colonialism is still alive and well. And these charities and these NGO, the NGO sector does not want to deal with any of the politics that come with poverty, that come with everything that we've described. And so they are actually really behind the curve, and they know it. As I said, the change will be forced upon these organisations from outside. They're not willing to do the work from the inside. They think they can do it, but they can't because you have, to, you have to let go of power and you have to understand power dynamics. So I've, I'm an optimist like Alexia. I'm one of those very annoying optimists and I can see change happening every day, but it's not happening inside these organisations. It's happening outside. And they want a piece of the pie. But they're not able to actually even get to the table to like look at the pie because that requires them to, like I said, make space for other people and to give, uh, give their power away. And that's not something they're willing to do.
4: We know that we're looking at a sector that is deeply buried its head under the sand. And until that head comes up, the money, as you say, will continue to shift and people's willingness to be associated publicly as ambassadors with these big endeavours will also start to shift. Alexia Scheister, thank you both so much.
0: Now, charity campaigns are often focused on government, but they don't have to be. In fact, they should be about engaging the public too. Human rights charity Equally Ours recently devised a particularly clever campaign designed to show exactly how human rights matter to all of us and how we often rely on them without even realising it. Third Sector senior reporter Liam Kay met Equally Ours chief executive Ali Harris to learn more about the idea behind their groundbreaking campaign.
6: Ali, lovely to meet you today. So explain to me exactly what your latest campaign has been about and what inspired it.
7: It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Liam. Equally as is the UK charity that brings people and organisations together to make a reality of equality and human rights in people's lives So. Members include organisations like Age UK, Mind, Runnymede Trust, Child Poverty Action Group, Stonewall, and loads of others. And this campaign is a long term campaign to show how human rights matter and are relevant in our daily lives in the UK. So, this was phase one of the campaign, and it was around creating a social media campaign that showed films of two focus groups of two fake products that we developed and those fake products were called Allen and uh, Credit Helper and when they're first presented to the audience it seems like they may be a good idea but when you look deeper as with lots of things mm. um, you can start to see that actually people's human rights were being breached and so people in the focus groups stood up and said, hang on a minute, this isn't okay, what's going on here? So the films were about those focus groups and really tell the story and show how ordinary people in the UK do value their human rights and will stand up for them. It came about because, I mean, essentially our human rights are the basic rights and freedoms we all rely on every day, even when we don't realise it. But there's a really toxic media narrative in the UK. It's been around for a long time. And because of that, people don't value their human rights. They don't use them when they need them. They don't defend them when they're under attack. And we really want to change that. And that's what this campaign is all about.
6: And in terms of the products as Mm -hmm. well that were in the films, can you give a little bit more sort of detail about what they entailed?
7: Yeah, sure. So the first one was called Allen, and that is the first UK's first ever home security. And communications device. So, a bit like one of those things you'll have for listening to music and finding out what the weather's doing. But what happens in the films and what the films show is that some of the things that the product can do, that Alan can do, actually start to get in the way of privacy and family life. So, recording, having everything recorded, being able to send suspicious information to the authorities. People in the focus group started to get very worried about that. They were thinking about what about our normal family life, when, when we're just having the usual, you know, what happens when I have an argument with my partner? What happens when I'm shouting at the kids? You know, yeah. our daily lives are full of fun and mess. And uh, actually having that recorded all the time, having people monitor that all the time would be a breach of how we just develop our everyday relationships. And so for people, they started to realise, hang on, that's not on. That's really getting in the way of us just having our normal family life. But the truth is that this technology is being developed right now. It's perfectly possible. All of these things that we built into the the products, they're perfectly possible. And they are happening. Some of them are happening already and some of them could be happening. And people need to kind of use human rights as a tool to think about, well, actually, is this all right for me and my family? Is it not? I'll tell you a little bit about the second one, which was credit helper. The strap line is pay now, work later. And basically the idea is that you access money and there's no credit checks. Anybody who can work can get this type of credit card, but that you pay it off by working. And again, people thought, well, that's fair enough. That could work. But, you know, I could see that working for younger members of my family, etc. But when, again, they dug deeper and they found out that it was going to be paid less than the minimum wage that potentially people's passports were going to be held, that there might be restrictive practices to make sure, like locked facilities. They started again to say, hang on a minute, Sounds good, but in practice, it's breaching my human rights, my family's human rights. I care about their human rights. And again, the fact is that all of the features of the product are real at the moment. So they are the sorts of conditions that lots of people, British citizens as well as migrant workers, are facing in lots of working environments.
6: What are you hoping to, I suppose, achieve with the campaign
7: so we wanted to show that, to, to show people that human rights really matter in our daily lives in the UK and that they're important tools that help us and also that we, we care about human rights much more than we think. Rather than it just informing people about the importance of human rights, which doesn't work as a strategy, <laughs> as a communication strategy, we knew that we needed to create an emotional connection, a values-based connection, between the reality of human rights and people's lives. And the idea behind that is to get people to start to feel and think differently about it. So the emotional connection and the feeling is really important. And that's what we were hoping to get across through the films and through the campaign.
6: What have reactions been like?
7: Well, even better than we'd hoped... So we've already had over 1.8 million views but we also did a separate survey to test to see if the if the films provide an effective alternative message and that survey showed it really did. We tested as well whether it would strengthen support people's support for, for human rights and again we saw uplifts in support of overall about 13.7%. But there's a sort of crucial segment within the audience, a neutral segment, who, after they'd seen the film, 56% of them moved from being neutral to agreeing or strongly agreeing with the view that human rights benefits me and the people I care about. So that was a really significant shift. One of the viewers summed it up and they just said, I didn't realise how empowering human rights was.
6: And uh, what advice would you give to other charities looking for a campaign that's a bit different?
7: I think three things, really. The first one is that the working relationship with the creative agency, that's really crucial. It has to be an active partnership rather than the sort of typical agency delivering a a brief for a client relationship. So mcgarry Burn were just absolutely brilliant. and, And it is about that partnership. It's about letting the agency find the brilliant creative idea that people can really relate to but also keeping true to your overall campaign strategy and in our case particularly using the values-based reframing techniques that help. The second piece of advice I think is to remember that alternative narratives work and counter narratives don't so you have to think about whose values your campaign is really advancing. Yours or the other sides. And research shows that every time we repeat the other side's frames or values or messages, when we're trying to counter those, what we actually do is reinforce them in people's minds. So myth-busting doesn't work. People don't remember the bust, they remember the myth. So values-based reframing, which is what we use in this campaign, is all about identifying where there's a, a connection, an intersect between our values as a charity and the public's pro-social values. And then you build your narratives and communications and your campaign around those values. It's helpful to think about values as muscles. So the more you use them, (laughs) the stronger they get. And in the sector, what we have to do is strengthen the values that support social change, not the ones that sustain inequality and the status quo. And then the third thing is really a kind of message that without being pie in the sky, we absolutely have to show solutions and hope. People are so overwhelmed these days, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> With, uh, and there is an awful lot going on, and a lot of it not very good <laughs> on all sorts of levels. Research shows people won't support a cause, no matter how important it is, if it doesn't offer credible ways forward and a sense that change is achievable. So that's really essential. And for us in the film, that was part of the reason why we wanted the focus group participants. They, they become the heroes. They stand up and say actually this isn't on, they band together and that's part of showing actually change is possible and we can do something about these things.
6: Thank you so much for your time today, Holly.
7: It's a pleasure. Thanks so
0: much for having us. We'll be back with another episode next month, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Amanda, Lydia, Alex, Alexia, Shyster and Ali for joining us. To the producer Anushya Tate for Rethink Audio and to you for listening.